Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I am your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm Ben Rose. How are you doing, Jared? I'm very, very well. We have a special guest today, again in the studio, the one, the only, chairman now of Instech, formerly Instech London, Robin Mertens. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm expecting a whole new kind of respect yeah, now I've got the chairman title. It has it's certainly warranted. Yeah, Jared's <laughs> going to have to wear a college shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Should have, should have dressed up for the occasion. Um, but but Robin, you sort of are, have been for those in London like a staple of sort of the innovation space for ages. I know when when Ben and I first started looking at like the future of insurance in this Instech movement. You were one of the first people we sort of landed on and started going to your sort of monthly um, events with everybody. So um, very much someone who's from your career in the industry then sort of left going, what is this, you know, how is technology going to transform where we go next? But I'd love to sort of dive into a bit of your career and then what sort of drew, drew you into the technology sphere of, of, of this, of insurance, and we can go from there. Um, well, thank you, and thanks for the kind words about Instech. In I mean, that, that we'll come back to, but but I'm I'm doing that by accident, not by design. There's nothing else left for me to do. Mm. Um, but by my first foray into technology, when I knew remarkably little about it, was was you know age forty when a friend of mine, Alex Letts, came along and said, uh, "I've raised a lot of money. I'm going to build um, e Lloyds." Uh, and I know about technology. Do you want to come and be Mr. Insurance part of it? And I was pretty unhappy where I was. So that, that was a, once I worked out how much money he'd raised, that was a no brainer decision. And although it wasn't um, 10, 10 million pounds in the bank, it was a line slip for effectively that amount of money, which in 2000 was well worth giving up your existing career and, and taking a risk with. Mm. And, and then we came from there. I mean, you know, it, it seems mad now that, that we would talk about E. Lloyds. Um, but, but then it was a very, very groundbreaking concept. Um, and we weren't the only ones going after it. Yeah. And I don't think it's been fully realized even 20 some years on now. It's not, you know, we've the the narrative of Lloyds digitizing itself like fully has yet to sort of come to fruition. So I think we're still on the a bit of the journey there. And it's interesting as well because you started very much in the enterprise business to business space. I know with Instech, you look at a lot of um, up and down the value chain. So a ton of consumer insure tech stuff, but also um, this enterprise stuff. So we can dive into that as, as we move forward as well. But um, from that very first part of the project, it's very much, you know, we've always sort of, the industry's always defined these things as platforms. Like what is the next platform, the digital platform that the industry will move towards? What are your thoughts on the challenges that we've had to date and then sort of maybe the term platform as a, as a terminology in general? Um, well, I, I find I've had a little trouble with the word platform only because I think it's massively overused. And if you look at almost every technology provider, certainly in tech, they would use the word platform. And I don't think supersede is immune um, from that. Uh, so I think it's slightly overused, and, I, and, I, and my my definition is always much more about it it being a sort of um, um, operating platform, a place where people can come and put sort of multiple uh, applications. But but I, I you know it's very difficult to find the right terminology, and I think what I've always been 
what RI3K was was in the end a many-to-many -many platform. In other words, it was it was, it was, a, it was a marketplace in which many brokers could access many carriers. And I think that you know that's that's a really interesting space in which I know you, know, you guys have had a, a good long hard look at, and which is the aspiration for most people who come into this that you you'll be ultimately a transactional platform where people can come in, run through a process, click a button and buy their insurance, whether that be at a B2C level or a B2B level. Mm. Because we went for Lloyd's, it was obviously always a B2B uh, thing. And, 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 and the starting point for all these things back in 2000 was a digital replica of what existed in the physical world. I mean, we were literally making a place where a broker could do exactly what a broker was used to doing with an underwriter, but but you know, but online as a digital experience rather than as a physical experience. Yeah, no, certainly it's. I love the term you use there, many to many, when we think about the transition we're trying to achieve, because you could argue that that Lloyd's, in its ancient iteration, is many to many because there's lots of different participants there. But that's not really what we mean here, I guess. Actually, Lloyd's in its oldest iteration is kind of one-to-one -one because you have people queuing and waiting to go and visit an underwriter at a box, and each underwriter can only serve one broker at a time. And then, in, as we said, across consumer and, and business, gradually we saw one-to-many start to emerge where, you know, on, on a single website, that website could service many different requests for the same thing simultaneously. And that, that platform, maybe the wrong word, Nirvana, is where we've got many-to-many -many happening where those those requests are interfacing simultaneously across different providers and, and suppliers and matching i guess what we've struggled to to really define a lot of times in insurance these buyers and sellers simultaneously operating you're never quite sure who's the buyer and who's the seller in commercial insurance especially but it's quite a, a challenge to get everybody playing online simultaneously yeah uh, i mean the thing about technology is it's forever evolving so if you'd said to me 20 years ago you'd be able to put um, a, a risk online and then algorithmically you would be able to define which of the various underwriters of Lloyd's might be able to, to take that or would have appetite for it and probably even the remaining capacity for it you know that would have been very exciting um, mm. originally you know you just you, it was what we called carpet bombing you just loaded up lots of underwriters and in press send and you probably or you knew in advance who you were going to send it to because other people used to walk it around but but bit by bit now the the technology your the many to many technology gets very very exciting because it comes so much more that you couldn't possibly replicate in the mm. digital world plus the quality we had to build everything from scratch with ri3k mm. i mean it sounds weird now but there was no such thing as a document management system or a we got an Oracle database and were ruthlessly exploited by Oracle consultants, as it seems to me everybody was in the day. But everything else we had to build from scratch. And we even had to agree a process. I mean, it was in, in those days, there was no document you could go to that says this is the process at Lloyd's. And in fact, it was almost impossible to get everybody to agree to the same process in those early days. So, mm -hmm. so we were quite pioneering from that point of view. And of course, a lot of the work's been done now to standardize process and to a lesser extent, standardized data. And the more you get down that journey, the more the, benefit, more the benefits accrue. I have to ask you a question, actually. So in my own time in the Lloyd strategy team, which would have been 2014, 15, 16, somewhere around then, we had a host of amazing role models to look at in all kinds of other industries. We'd be like, oh, what if Lloyd's became the eBay for risk, the Tinder for risk, the 
I don't know, whatever you wanted to do, Facebook for risk. What were you looking at in the early days of RI3K as, oh, what if we had, you know, your Eloids? What was the the inspiration that you could draw upon there? Well, I, th- I think, I mean, it's a very nice question in the sense that every, 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 every other industry was moving from a physical market to a, to a digital market, and, and therefore there were templates to borrow. Um, but the ones that most people went for, as, as, as examples, was the International Petroleum Exchange or Commodities Exchange. But, but they were slightly different in the sense that they were um, known things. I mean, Brent crude mm-hmm. has a price at any given moment in time, and then you, you can, you know, that, whereas we were sending something that had absolutely no sort of pre-agreed price or even enough structure to be able to go through that. Um, and that what everybody wanted was an exact replica of what they were doing before. I mean, it, to the extent where once we'd built it, we started to demo it. And an underwriter once said to me, where do I put a pencil line on the slip? And, and I said, well, we, we have to have a digital process now. We can't have a concept of putting a piece of a pencil signature on something. Yeah. They said, well, I can't you know, possibly use it then. Mm. So, you know, we had to go back to the drawing board. That happened a lot, that sort of, you haven't exactly replicated what we used, what we were used to doing. Yeah. For, for those who are less familiar, for listeners who are less familiar with the Lloyd's process, a penciled line is a very soft indication of what you're, like it's, you've not put it on pen, you've not stamped it, but you're saying, I'm going to do this, but I can revoke this kind of without, you know, and this is what you're trying to say is, is the digital version of that doesn't allow us to have this sort of soft indication expression of interest category. Um, and if you try to replicate everything, the, the UX becomes untenable, right? It's impossible to have like hundreds of options for all men because it, it doesn't lend itself very cleanly to just being a, a pure replica. Um, but you you made an interesting analogy to the the oil trade, and I think the industry is often looked at um, pursuing kind of what the financial markets have done. But we've always seen challenges there because it doesn't there is it's not a one to one. Those are different types of products. Pure commodities don't lend themselves very nicely at all to being how insurance risks will be traded. How how have you sort of seen that sort of analogy go forward and? Um, what do you sort of see the future look like if if it's not a pure commodity and it's not an exact replica of human interaction but on computers where do where do you sort of see the the end game in the next sort of fifteen twenty years sort of landing I, I think the I think we're at the beginning of the end game now uh, and what I mean by that is um, what can be algorithmically priced is starting to move up from simply houses, cars, and contents. Um, and uh, you, know, you look at the work of somebody like that, that um, Rethink are doing at, at, at Howden's with, with algorithmically or profiling risk so that they can work out where it might be auto-priceable as a broker. Or something like Fave, uh, which is owned by Canopius, where you know, that's quite complicated business. That That's... that's US high net worth business, but it's being auto priced. So, um, you know, where you have volume, certainly in the delegated underwriting space, I think that more and more that starts to become uh, auto priceable or algorithmically priceable. Um, but I also think that 
a good proportion of the total amount of business that goes through Lloyd's is never audit possible. I mean, it might be as a portfolio, as a whole portfolio, it might be something that could be uh, automated. But but, but I, I see increasingly kind of triage system, both for brokers and for underwriters, where, you know, this you can just auto price, this might need a bit of manual intervention, this is m manual whole way, because it's something that just has never been seen before, or just needs some brain to but even you know even that would be a, a massive advance on where we are now and make us a much more efficient marketplace to deal with yeah it's interesting you mentioned the delegated authority business i think sometimes i mean sometimes oftentimes to borrow an american expression i have <laughs> that's for everybody flinch there um the the justification for this innovation has been hard for a lot of market practitioners to really get on board with. You know, it's like, oh, do we really have to go through digitization or digitalization? It's, it's, it's quite a big, arduous process for us when it's fine doing it face to face, etc. But there are a few areas uh, where, for you know, all sorts of cost reasons, especially, the market is having to cut back on business plans and, and delegated authority is what we've seen in the news a lot recently where Lloyd's have said, you know, folks, you can't carry on writing this business with these huge acquisition and admin costs where it's being touched so many times where, yeah, a tiny bit of it is being, you know, part of a portfolio, but actually you're getting more um, exceptions to your rules that have to be then re-underwritten each time that none of this business is actually simple follow business. So it really does create a bit of real motivation to invest in these sorts of things whereas i think otherwise as you said it's sort of we want to do exactly what we do now but on a computer and then we'll be digital hooray but we do we do need a real reason i think to do these sorts of things well i think there are two areas where i get incredibly grumpy and um as you know i can be grumpy uh, and they are spreadsheets as the basis of managing and moving data around in the delegated underwriting space there's simply no reason for it other than that it's a lowest common denominator transport mechanism but, but they didn't tend to use the spreadsheets for what spreadsheets were invented for they just happened to be a place where you can put something and send it to someone else and they can take a look at it and, and the other thing is just the pdfs of documents yeah <laughs> those are in the modern era, so easily digitizable. And many, in many cases, they start digitized and then they get undigitized for the processes of, 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 of transport again. Yeah. You know, the, 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 some of this stuff is really, really difficult. Um, but but that, that, neither of those are difficult. And that should have yeah. been done a long time ago. And yeah, we, we, we agree. I think it's those seem like quite low hanging fruit. And it, it's this differentiation between documents and data, right? And you look at the really large firms who want to talk about how much data they have and and they've written you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of contracts of which they have a handful of fields from each which are data and then they've got a mountain of documents that are sort of sit that they can't actually extract anything of value from i think you know the the world that you're envisioning there is is one where by default it's data centric actually data driven the underlying information the entirety of of the process that's being involved, the deal that's being done in its entirety is sort of data centric, which then in the in the sort of immediate term delivers sort of efficiency gains, but in over time begins to deliver some very powerful ability to interrogate that data, get gather insights, 
plan for the future, change what you want to do as a strategy. Like it really begins to unlock a lot. But right now it's sort of, oh, here is, you know, we can extract, we have a PDF, which we can now extract seven fields from. Okay. That's even increased fragmentally the amount of information that you have, but you're still like document centric. And there will be a transition, I think, that, that you have there. But yeah, the, the spreadsheet reliance is painful. I mean, there's two aspects to it. I, th I think that, that you know, we, we, we know we suffer from a kind of um, cultural issue, which is wedded to tradition wherever possible. But, but the other thing which probably I learned is the biggest thing I learned in the period that I was running R3K or that became Catalyst was um, how incredibly difficult it is to get consensus on anything. Mm. And any model which by its nature, because we've called these many to many, needs many to um, agree on things, is, is in the industry in which we work fabulously difficult. There's no ability to corral people. If Aon think it's a good idea, you know, Marsh won't. If the brokers like it, then the carriers won't. The, the, the ability to get people all in the same place. And, and by extension, if you then say, right, we'll never get this agreed, we're going to mandate something, or we're going to kind of, this is the way that we are, R3K, going to do it. Everyone goes up in arms and says, well, you never made the case, you know, you've got to never bought the hearts and minds. You, 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 you lose either way. And I think more than anything else, the last 20 years has shown through all the failures that we've had, that just getting people, everybody who needs to, to agree to something at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the delegated underwriting is easily doable. It's just you can't get every party to the transaction to agree to do it, and therefore it stays where it is. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I remember, you know, mo uh, not quite as recently, but I a few years ago we had the, the I Support Tom campaign, you know, for the, the revamp people, and everything was orange, and you had posters everywhere, and it, that was very much the can we get the hearts and minds? And then more recently you had the B3I <laughs> initiative that at least had, you know, direct investment and sponsorship from massive firms. And obviously that's not come to fruition either. So it's, what what have you got to do to get everybody on the same page? Or as, as you said, maybe that's not the approach to take. Yeah. I thought that B3I thing was really interesting when you look at the Swiss Re comment on it. They, mm -hmm. they, they, and one, I'm not one of these people who goes, I, mean, I told you so, because it, cause, I mean, it seemed to be for the first time for a long time, the industry actually put money into experimenting on something and learned. And we don't have this concept of quick fail. It wasn't particularly a quick fail, but, mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot was learned. And, if, and the thing that was learned was, it was almost what we're talking about, which is you, you need to have every party to the transaction on that same one technology. They were effectively trying to do something halfway through the transaction at the reinsurance phase, not having captured the data they needed to at the insurance phase. And, yeah. and they took the view, which is, I think, rightly, that they would never be able to conjoin the two, so they gave up. But yeah. um, that's what we learned. Right? We learned that everyone's got to be in the game, otherwise it's very difficult to do this stuff. Yeah, I, th I think there's always complexity. When you have that co-opetition kind model if it's a word that we could we people still use these days um but there's there's certainly difficulty in when you need to align with certain changes even something very small so if a disagreement in um lines of business or geography namings or, or whatever that might be when you're especially working, working on a blockchain um but when you have to agree with what you're going to select going forward there's always an imbalance however small it may be that one party is going to sacrifice more, even if it's they have to spend 
10,000 more man hours or people hours upgrading their system to adapt to the other one. Like there's always a little bit of a trade-off. So it's, it's, it's looking at it more of going, well, why should we have to in- make our internal system changes? You should do that. Instead. So people get really entrenched into what would be, if you're starting from scratch, no one would, no one would debate this. But if we were starting from a blank piece of paper, we could probably align on these things much more easily, much more quickly, but we're not. We're starting, as we talk about all the time, a deep mountain of legacy data and technologies. So the change required for all parties to align on a new model going forward is felt differently by different firms. And when you're doing that alongside a potential um, competitor, that feels more stressful. I don't want our team to spend hundreds of millions of more dollars upgrading so we map to your systems. You should map to our systems version. And and so that's that's sort of underlying a lot of this. And I think one of the reasons that these things can sort of really get sort of stuck is is lo- those sort of internal battles that you bump into. I think the, the technical term for this kind of inertia is, is status quo loss aversion. Mm. So it's a really good Machiavellian quote that I've seen pop up a few times. It's something along the lines of the innovator will find no friends amongst anyone who's benefiting from the status quo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> no, that, I mean, that seems to be exactly what insured tech has become. And, and it, it won't, perhaps this era is already coming to an end, but mm. it became the party that entered the equation to temporarily or permanently improve what was there before because the, the, the establishment, the, the incumbent fairs, couldn't improve it themselves. Yeah. And that hasn't happened much in the London market necessarily. But if you look at something like embedded insurance, for instance, it's a it's a world completely dominated by insurtech because because insurtech had the it has the capacity to build the technology that sat between a distributor and an insurer, mm-hmm. uh, and and the incumbent world sitting mostly on legacy couldn't you know possibly do it. So, and I think bit by bit one world partners and or consumes the other. But, but that's exactly the role it seems to me that InsureTech has played. It's it's said, well, if you guys aren't going to do it, then there's an opportunity here and we will step in. Yeah. I definitely remember reading InsTech London's various reports over the time where we started with that, you know, wow, okay, look at the potential for disruption and then seeing the way that the parties sort of coalesced, then maybe more collaboration and partnership was the way forwards. I, are, we, are we still in a sort of optimistic or positive bullish view of of partnership for insurtechs as the way forwards do you think how's that no i think so for sure i, I mean i think the days of what i call the bedsit driven innovation are over and there's lots of excitement about some 23 year old from imperial with a degree in data science who was going to show you how to insure your pets or something mm-hmm. i mean that, I, I think that day's long gone i think the companies to be taken seriously are those that the investment world is prepared to give serious amounts of money to and on the whole they're pretty good they're pretty good judges but if you look at what's happened to instech as a community it was all about startups at the beginning and we gave them a platform and a place where they could come and showcase what they were doing but our membership now is likely to be nasdaq or mastercard mm. or salesforce or you know stripe as it is anybody else and, and that's because the the incumbent world sees the value in um, partnering and or acquiring and or learning from, you know, what's going on in that space. And it's, you know, there won't be as many unicorns as everybody imagined because the 
partnership model will be the prevailing model, and, and it'll get absorbed either you know, one way or another, it gets absorbed into the way the incumbent world works. But, you know, and, and that's why I think there's much talk about M&A these days, because the really good ones will, I'm sure, just get bought. Mm -hmm. The biggest insurance companies in the world, if they become a threat or they become, they, they also, they so patently are a place of opportunity. Yeah. And sp speaking of reports and, and instec, there's been one quite interesting to this episode released quite recently. I, I wondered if you wanted to give us a sort of mini tour of your, your marketplaces and exchanges report because we, we really enjoyed reading it but mm. our listeners might not have seen it yet so what does it say and where can they find it you're very neatly done um and th thank you uh yes it's, i mean this is a an area which for the reasons you've touched on was always fascinated me and i've had 20 years of experience in it and then and then every now and again i get sort of um a, a, a passionate desire to tell everybody what's going on in my mind mm. um, and this is one of those it wasn't driven by our membership particularly asking to write about it but but I could see for myself um, the moving of the tectonic plates and we now have a very well resourced research team so writing these things becomes fundamentally easier and and the underlying thesis is that when, while we started out replicating the IPE, the ICE, or E. Lloyd's to build the physical equivalent, I don't think now we will ever see a big utility type model. Mm -hmm. Back to the issues we've touched on. You can't get consensus. Um, the establishment has proved itself not well equipped, to put it politely. Uh, to lead these things. Uh, and therefore, I think the next generation, partly fueled by InsureTech, is these lots of individual platforms, to use your word, that are solving different problems. Some of them solve a problem of giving you access to different sources of capacity. Some of them provide you with a niche area you can go and insure your crypto assets. Um, you know, there, there are now... And, Lots of people who are who have very sensibly, to my view, said that that big one looks beyond us. But if we pick off parts of the value chain, we become niche in just cargo. We can build a very interesting business with that, and that's that's the basis of the report. And, and we called it ten ways in which marketplaces and exchanges are changing the nature of insurance because each of those ten categories are doing something new and solving. An existing problem of which you know that's why we featured you guys because you, you you know you you selected a problem to solve and you're solving it and and i'm sure when you when you are finished solving that you'll go on and solve something else that's what i like about this model is it becomes highly doable your original plan and then those who are successful and can raise the money will get will go on from where they start to, to solve more and more of these problems yeah and i think that's you've touched on some of the historical challenges people have have tried to to or run into trying to do this is they try to do everything at once. It has to do all spectrums of insurance and then reinsurance and then maybe retro or ILS. And they're trying, it, it just makes it impossible to service any one of them sufficiently well. But in this, in this new framework, people can lean into the areas that work really, really well. If, if there's gaining traction across different, you might see little mergers similar to like a, lemonade metro mile in the u.s for like that kind of model but also if you look at other startups who um are building like um 
HR software or something. They might partner with a company that's done contracts or similar because they're all sort of solving the niche that they're starting in and then bumping into adjacencies and seeing who else is having some success, who else has found the model that's working in those areas. And you see this sort of more organic kind of growth um, versus the historical model, which was let's try to solve all of this at once, eat the elephant in one go, um, and then been perpetually plagued with um, development delays and everything else because they've tried to do so much at once, solve for every fringe use case at once, you know, versus sort of just chipping away at a core problem and then seeing what happens as you as you gain traction there. So, so many things become solvable now. I mean, a lot of the niche exchanges, which only do one class, are able to put 20 people around a table who are all they need in a, in, to be able to access their entire market for that not hundreds of people, and then to agree data standards, you know, and then to agree far more easily what the next rollout will, so that they can excel, they can make their exchange fundamentally more efficient because they are, are able to align all the parties around more efficient ways of doing things um, and, and agreeing sort of more standardization over time, which itself drives the, drives the efficiency. And that's what I like about it. It's it's just easier to achieve things. You can get you can just go much faster. And at some point, those exchanges become so much cheaper and quicker as a place to transact business that that, that becomes a you know competitive advantage. And others have to say to themselves, "What do we do now? Do we build one of those? Do we go and play on that one?" But we can't. We can't. Well, they're getting a quote in five seconds flat and we're wandering something around the market we we've we, we got to do something about this yeah. i i also think that you'll 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 begin to bump into this self-fulfilling prophecy where the success and momentum of those marketplaces and those exchanges makes it easier for new entrants to join them so if you think about historically there's always been criticism of the willingness for executives in our industry to invest in these sorts of efforts because it always felt like a huge multi-year project with a huge amount of upfront costs, et cetera. And, and no one wanted to put their sort of head up to do that. But if, as you, these things gain momentum and they see other people in peer groups and they see that they can actually get up and running on that, even to a smaller degree over, over the course of a few months versus multiple years, and the, the cost of joining those exchanges decreases, more and more will sort of go, we should do a bit of that. or And that momentum accelerates, and then more companies see their competitors there as well, so now they're missing out. Ben's used the example before about at a certain scale, like Hilton has to be on Hotels.com because no one's just going to go to their site if everyone starts their search here. That same behavior will happen in our industry where you'll see this massive acceleration where people go, well, we need to figure out how we, well, how we also you know, play in this environment, because if we don't, it's it's going to be jeopardizing to our business and our growth potential. I think to your earlier point, the challenge we have is the initial chicken and egg problem mm -hmm. is, is so forceful that the negative network effects are almost ridiculously strong in our space compared to the positive network effects. It tends to just take one party to be a pain. You know, I think with V3i, for example, uh, the brokers were not really invited at the beginning mm -hmm. and then eventually came on as kind of testing partners um, and then went off and did their own sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, it starts to fall down suddenly if you're missing key participants and even had they taken part, yes, you had 20 major insurers and reinsurers, but what if you want to place a deal that's got other insurers that don't want to play ball? 
mm. suddenly again one Milton, yeah. you know, can can ruin it because you, well, you you need not just one outcome from your many yeah. to many interactions. You actually need many as the result. Yeah. Well, and that's further complexity added to that with sort of the consolidation at the top in our industry, the sort of how much control the few big players can have. And then to your earlier Machiavellian quote, it's sort of if those firms benefit the most, which historically they have, because they're the biggest from the status quo, they're oftentimes the least excited to sort of kick the wall down and tear out, tear up the playbook because it's serving them very, very well right now. So you're trying to solve around all of these various things and, and build a business that sort of threads the needle as they is that a, do you guys use thread, threads the needle as a saying? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> These are ones as, I, as I'm saying them going, oh, this might only resonate with the American audience. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Well, that's part of the reason I wrote the report, which is to highlight the fact that there are people who are doing things. In other words, it's very, I think the easiest thing to do is do nothing. Yeah. And at some point I made the observation that even after reading the report, most people still do nothing because they're either protected because they're one of the big players who have leverage to enable them to, to sweat the existing model. Or I think some will necessarily do some of the work which enables them to play in a kind of ecosystem world where they need to integrate to multiple parties. I think people have got to get their heads around that. But there are people who are saying, we can't go on like this any longer. We're going to build one ourselves. And some of that's innovation and entrepreneur driven. And some of it's actually been driven by the marketplace itself. Mm -hmm. And none of those people are looking to lock anybody out. In other words, they're, getting, they're building them with the view that once they've proven the model, others will be invited at any time, that they will have governance and data protection models, which means that there's no possibility of there being any you know, bad behavior in, in the running of those exchanges. Mm -hmm. So I, I admire the, you know, as I always have done, and this because in my DNA, I, I admire those who are saying, right, we can't carry on like this for any longer. Any longer. Let's, let's, let's build something. And, 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 and I think almost all of them would welcome discussion with their competitors or with other markets at any time mm -hmm. because they, they haven't built it to, for just for themselves. They've built it as the answer to the market's problems. Yeah, I remember concluding, interestingly, with this sort of, let's just do it ourselves or we've got to get this done. So let's crack on with it. I remember one of the major conclusions of a report I did in my consulting days was you've got to be omni-channel for now, at least until if ever this ultimate solution emerges. And I, I, th I think of things like um, DocuSign, for example, as being quite creator driven to some mm -hmm. extent. So if somebody wants to get their document signed. They've got to choose how to do it. Yes, some of your signees might prefer that you used hello sign instead. But at the end of the day, if they want to sign the document, they're not going to ruin it for everyone else. You send it out as the creator and hopefully everybody signs your document mm -hmm. and it's done. And actually then if another creator sits out next to you, decides to send something through hello sign, all those participants are going to find a way to sign it via hello sign mm -hmm. as well. So I, I feel like if we can empower the, the creators, I think for us in SuperSeed, that's often the seedants and the breakers who are the deal makers. Mm -hmm to just get a really good tool that they can use to get their individual deal done, then if people want to be a part of that deal, then <laughs> use the thing and it's going to make their lives easier as well. And, and if there's another one, great. But, mm. yeah, That's the biggest thing that's changed in the last 20 years. I said earlier we had to build everything from scratch. You, you can walk out now and talk to Microsoft or Amazon or Salesforce and you can get just about everything you need you better start configuring but 
you know, you, you, it's easy, at that point, it's easy to integrate with, it's easy to build a process, it's, it's, it's probably got some things in the front which will turn data into doc documents into data yeah. that you could spin up pre-existing technology. So, mm -hmm. so not only have you, are you, you know, have you got the creators and are encouraging the creators, but you, you, you can give them the tools. And, and that's the biggest difference. That's why there are so many platforms playing out there right now, because, yeah. it's, because the toolkit's so good. And Cordy gave us a challenge earlier Ooh. before we got started recording. He did. I'm wondering if we should move on to that segment. So the as as you know from from listening to the podcast, we always like to have a few games that we play with guests, especially. Um, this one is our analogy battle. Um, as the chairman of Instec, I we wanted to sort of do what is sort of your analogy for the insure tech space. So something that describes insure tech as a movement or an idea. More generally, we'll have Ben kick it off and see how, and we'll see how we get, how we get on. The warm up act. Supporting. <laughs> Here we go. I, I'm cheating slightly because I, I gave this at a, an Aon leadership offsite years ago. I, but basically, I compared InsureTech a while ago to veganism. I, especially as we were going through this transition where most people are still not vegans in the world, but there are increasingly options made available that cater towards people who want to use vegan products for something so you start to see it pop up more and more most famously with in the uk the greg's vegan sausage roll and gradually mcdonald's and Burger King and all the fast food chains realizing we've got to have uh, a, a vegan option and i see it quite similar to insuretech in the sense that we haven't seen suddenly everything taken over and turned into you know vegan alternatives and we now only use vegan we're seeing little pockets make it available we're seeing particular niches like fast food where it's you know where perhaps the supply chains were the most harrowing mm -hmm. <laughs> replacing uh, some of their meat ingredients with vegan options instead uh, where the economies of scale make sense where it, it makes sense to invest and where your value proposition isn't about how well you've reared your animals mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a very similar i uh, environment and movement that, that's sort of gradually building momentum, but not necessarily kicking out the former status quo. I, I like your multi-channel comparison too, where it's like, you don't have to go all vegan, but you should have a couple things on your menu, right? It's this sort of transitional thing there. Do you want to go next to a, then? No, I, I, I can't beat that. I think that's... <laughs> He's I, got a strong lead. I, I think that's a strong lead. But I, but I would say this, that, that we organize dinners every couple of weeks and... Um, it's fair to say uh, that the event organizer does spend a lot of time having to um, deal with everybody's different mm. food choices these days. <laughs> and just the day when you could put a set menu in front of everybody is longer gone. When yeah. we, when if you have twenty people, you'll have to deal with a lot of different kinds of tastes and preferences mm. of the world. We are. So I mean, I think it's a, it's as, as good as you're going to get from me. <laughs> uh, the the one that I came up with during the show was um it's it's sort of cheating since it's looking at uh another industry being quite broadly impacted by technology um but that of of travel in the same kind of way of every trip might be a little bit different um just like risks are and and clients might have numerous different types of risks and in certain cases i want to get a fancy hotel and stay in a big city in other cases i want to find a yurt in the countryside or i want to get um, some additional coverage, or I want to book an experience, and I'm what historically would have been go to one person 
and hope that that person at this you know high street storefront can solve all of my needs, whether that's insurance needs or whether that's um, pl- planning a trip, has has moved online and and the the insurance insure tech ecosystems that are emerging and evolving give you more options. You can break your policies up. You can get just certain things for different carrier, uh, different carriers for different needs. And you can be a bit more bespoke around, okay, well, I have this little thing I want to make sure I have coverage too. And there's someone else to sort of support that, however much that might be um, slightly more niche or nuanced or similar. Um, yeah. But it's parallels quite heavily to just technology in general. No, but I, I think it's a, it's a very good one because it, it when you think of the trips you've done recently and, and when you've traveled, it is rare, although some sites, you know, will try to compel you to use just one, mm. you know, op- option for flights, hotel, and hire car. Mm. We rarely do, right? We actually tend to use multiple exchanges, mm. uh, and of- often with consumer stuff, it's more of like an aggregator type model. I, but you know, we use one thing to find our flights, and then we switch to a completely different thing to find a hotel. Or I, I used one for campsites as well, yeah. you know, in the past. I same for restaurants and so on. We might have all sorts of alternatives depending on what we're looking for at different times. So yeah. that idea, as I think we've all concluded, I think in, in this episode, that there's just going to be one great big thing and all the industry participants are going to collaborate to build it together is maybe not not only not the right thing for our industry, but not actually something that's tended to be the end result for any other industries yeah. or most other industries either. Well, I think the underlying shared sort of features of both of those analogies is the the benefit to the end consumer right if if you were vegan a number of years ago like you could go to these two restaurants and those two restaurants had one choice each right and and you were quite confined to what you could have and now it's sort of like you can go most places there's there's more there's numerous options everywhere you go so the the experience at the end is much better um if you think about it in an insurance angle if i'm a broker and i have a client and that client now has has one of their large clients um, wants to have horses. We, I've never done bloodstock sort of insurance before. This mechanism now allows me to go to find the people who can help me with this risk so that I can sort of better service my end client. Like it's this sort of experience is, is improving in such a way that you're always able to sort of fill whatever sort of gaps you might have um, or needs you might have as whether it's as a consumer or as a, business owner i think that's the benefit of everyone down the chain so um we're, we're getting there i think the industry is moving along very very nicely i was thinking about the you know the supermarket analogy to your point about not going to one place um you know that's patently not right i, I mean i do think that this there's a, a, a company we feature in the report called bolt tech I, I do feel that that that's a supermarket i feel like you can go to the supermarket and and you can buy a lot of things in the supermarket whereas what you two are talking about and and I, and I think if you know in, in the in the analogy game if I look at what Instech is um you know it, it is like um an old school marketplace mm-hmm. there's, there's lots of shops yeah and you you go and talk to any you go and talk to the data shop or you go and talk to the technology shop or you you know you go and talk to the API shop there it's it's like having lots of people doing crafts mm-hmm. and, and, and and inventing that you can go and talk to about what you might be able to buy to solve your problems. Or yeah. Some of them will go on to create their own MGAs and their own 
possibly insurance companies with their from their market stall. Yeah. But it still feels like there are lots of stalls rather yeah. than one big place to go. I love that. The modern artisans. Modern artisans. There we are. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. We'll go home with we, the head held high. You should. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll certainly put a link in the notes um, both to the, the uh, most recent papers you've put out as well as to your um, your site because you host, I still monthly, I think, the sort of events you hold in London. So listeners who are in London who are interested in this space, which if you listen to our podcast, you probably are, um, would certainly recommend swinging by there, not only to say hi to me and Ben, but um, to say hi to you, Robin, and get to sort of experience what, what Instech is doing in, in the London scene, which I think is fabulous. If anyone wants to come, let me know and we'll, we'll sort out a free ticket. Next one is 13th, 13th of September um, at the Steel Yard down by Cannon Street Station. Wonderful. We'll promote this in front of that. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Robin. So much, Thank you so much covered. So much that's opened up as well. We've barely touched on APIs or <laughs> open data and so on. But yeah, lots yeah. to get our minds Indeed. fizzing until the next episode of the Reinsurance Podcast. Well, thank, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.